From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So if I'm going to do philosophy and keep kind of my intellectual end as the blues singer keeps his or her end of the deal, then I need to not only entertain philosophical puzzles, as it were, but also give my intellectual gifts to the process of liberation as well. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Jacob Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. Dr. Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and Dr. Stone is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Today we're talking about their recent book, which they co-authored, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. It's a look in-depth at a philosophical movement that has been around since the 19th century, but really has gotten a renaissance in the 20th and 21st centuries. We'll be talking about the details of that, but before we do, let me first of all say, Dr. Jacob Goodson and Dr. Brad Elliott Stone, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. This is a marvelous moment of conversation. Well, I'm, I'm just so excited to get into talking about this book, because I have to say, when I first opened it, I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be a dry text on philosophy. But as a person who is interested in not only the philosophical, but the social, the racial, the justice-oriented questions that animate the heart of this book, I was so pleasantly surprised at how powerfully I was gripped by the argumentation and the lights of thought that I encountered here. And I I really just, first of all, want to commend you both on a real masterwork in terms of how to do the public work of philosophy. So first of all, just thank you for that. And, And I want to ask a specific question because your book is set up as a dialogue. It is set up very much as a back and forth between you both as thinkers. And so I want to ask, first of all, to Professor Stone, what was it that made you both decide that this was the right way to go about it, to write an essay as a chapter and then have the other person respond to that and to build the process of pointing out where each other is is sort of missing the mark? Well, I always joke that this book is the recording of years of fighting and screaming with each other, you really have to be friends to to do this kind of thing. When you don't already know the other person, it comes off very stilted. I think a lot of the passion you feel in the book is the actual passion of two people who've known each other for a mighty long time. I've known Jacob for a very long time. I've watched him get married. I've watched his children grow. We talk about these things all the time. And so we finally just decided, let's write it down and share this debate we have with each other on 
what prophetic pragmatism is and what it can do. And so for me, that's really what makes this book work. It's two people who have been connected for so long on this topic, but also realize we're not always saying the same thing when we're talking to each other. So it's kind of a record of figuring out what each of us means when we talk about prophetic pragmatism. Well, and I want to dig into what those two words, prophetic and pragmatism, mean in just a moment. But on the way there, I want to linger for a moment or two more on the question of kind of public scholarship and public philosophy. I think that there's a sense among laypersons oftentimes that the job of the scholar in public is to be the expert on everything. And one of the things, uh, Dr. Goodson, that I am aware of in the presentation of this particular book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, is that, as Dr. Stone just said, you were willing both to call each other out on places where you thought that the other had missed the mark. It was an expression for me of public vulnerability. And I wonder, uh, as a writer and as an interlocutor in this process, what was it like for you, Professor Goodson, to be publicly vulnerable in that way on the page? That's a great question. And I think part of the enjoyment of writing this kind of book is that it it represents a conversation and so the writing itself is not as lonely as what we usually think in terms of scholarly writing but you are exactly right that i had to allow for some vulnerabilities and mistakes one of the more difficult features of writing this kind of book was that we learned pretty quickly that we could not make major changes to chapters once we were responding to one another and so if, if there was an argument that i changed my mind about that I had written in, let's say, chapter two, but I knew that Dr. Stone was writing, or was almost finished with chapter three, it would be unfair to then go back and change the argument I made in chapter two. So for me, that's, when you talk about vulnerabilities, that's, that was a particularly difficult task of completing this book, is, is sort of letting an instinctual or intuitional argument just to let it sit at that stage so that the book could proceed as a dialogue so that I, I didn't take away from ideas that Dr. Stone was commenting on or critiquing. The particular vulnerability that I've, I've just chosen to laugh about is in the section on race. Dr. Stone calls me out for not taking the blues seriously enough. And we laughed about that once he wrote that sentence down. And he, he offered to, to take that sentence away. And I said, no, based on what I've written, you're right. I do not take the blues seriously at all, according to what I've written. Although when I read that sentence the first time, it sort of hurt in the heart to be critiqued in that way. Dr. Stone was certainly right that in my account of race, I did not take into account the blues at all. And, and that was a mistake. So that, that kind of vulnerability, I think if you're able to laugh at oneself, with the critique and realize that the critique is both accurate, but also a, for me, it's a further invitation. I've now been listening to the blues almost every day since this book's been published as a way to, uh, to really account for the role of music within prophetic pragmatism. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Jacob Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. We're discussing their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Now, prophetic pragmatism is described as a gritty philosophical framework that undergirds the intellectual and political work done by those who seek to overcome despair, dogmatism, and depression. And we're going to dig in as our conversation proceeds into what all of those terms mean. And so why don't we take a moment now and start to define these terms. So let's start with pragmatism. And I recognize it is a, it is a philosophical movement with a lot of complexity. But in a, in a brief fashion, uh, Dr. Stone, if you'd be willing, what do you mean and, and what is meant in this book when we're using the term pragmatism? For me, pragmatism names an American tradition of doing philosophy that heightens American democratic sensibilities. John Sturr uh, wonderfully says that pragmatism is democracy as philosophical method, and I concur with that. At the heart of pragmatism is an effort to explain the American purview or the American aspect of life, to explain what makes, for example, descendants of slaves able to claim a nation that, as it were, was never supposed to be for them and thrive inside of that American context. It's a philosophical movement that tries to make sense of the practices of freedom that characterize the American way of life. So for me, that would be the most important way to think of pragmatism versus, let's say, it's figures. Because when we talk about figures in the history of pragmatism, we tend to lean toward Ivy League and particular people in particular philosophical camps, but that then overlooks the very wealth of pragmatic thought that, for example, prophetic pragmatism wants to rely on. I need a definition of pragmatism that allows me to account a more famous name like Charles Sanders Peirce, as well as a blues artist like Buddy Guy. And so... If I want to claim both of them are articulating practices of freedom that are indicative of an American democratic way of life, then I need a notion of pragmatism that is not bound to particular figures or schools. That's so helpful. And, and we, we're going to dig into that transcending of the Ivy League barrier into common life as our conversation continues. But just as a way of, again, making sure that our listeners are on board, I want to turn to you, Professor Goodson, and ask now, when we use the word prophetic in this title, prophetic pragmatism, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about some kind of spooky, spiritual, religious thing? Someone uh, wearing sort of hair shirts and standing out in the wilderness proclaiming, repent, repent? Or what do we mean by prophecy here? It very well could mean the, the thing you said. Yeah, I mean, prophet. We, we do recognize and we have to recognize that prophecy is an ancient religious concept. It does require belief in the reality of God as well as the claim that God's speech can be heard, read, and received through and within each generation. But what I found in writing this book was that in addition to the theological understanding of prophecy, which I, which I just described, that prophecy is empty if it also doesn't come with substantive and targeted cultural critiques. So it's one thing to receive or to think that you've received 
a word from God that is intended for some community or particular group of people. It's another thing to claim that word in the sense where you are using that word to highlight and to proclaim the oppression and suffering of a certain group of people. And so the, the, the divine word, the theological understanding of prophecy has to serve as a kind of promise, as a kind of promise for deliverance from the oppression and suffering that a particular community or particular communities are experiencing. And I think when the word prophetic gets used as an adjective in prophetic pragmatism, I think it's leaning more towards that cultural criticism side of prophecy, of trying to identify the oppression and suffering of a community or particular communities. But one thing that we learned from writing on Cornell West, the American philosopher Cornell West, is that you have a more substantive cultural criticism if you ground it in the theological understanding of prophecy, if you ground it in what West calls the love and justice that Jesus of Nazareth brought to this earth. And so we really wanted to up, to lift up the cultural critic piece of prophecy, but Professor Cornel West did not let us lose the theological understanding of prophecy and trying to explain what that phrase means. So let me see if I've heard this correctly. So prophecy is an attempt to speak a, a divine word into the present in a way that reflects a need for justice and a need for fundamental change. And, and it speaks a word to the future in hope for the future. And I want to make sure that my listeners follow this. So if I get a stock tip, and the stock tip tells me what is likely to happen to a hot stock in the next week or the next month, and I buy that stock. In some ways, I predicted the future, but I haven't necessarily enacted justice. And so justice is an important component of this. And uh, Professor Stone, I want to make sure when I'm making that kind of move and using that illustration, is that an accurate way of understanding this, or is there anything that you would attenuate or anything that you would adjust in what I said? No, you're correct to point out that justice is an essential feature of the prophetic. So it would be really weird for me, you know, to come down from the mountain after the smoke and the lightning on the mountaintop and my face shining so brightly that I have to put a veil over my head the way Moses did when he came down Mount Sinai and say, thus said the Lord, two plus three equals five. That would perhaps be a message from God, but it wouldn't usually be what we consider prophetic. A prophetic would be what God has Jonah do to the Ninevites, to go to Nineveh and, and say that things need to change. Or you have Jeremiah. You know, many people have argued that Cornel West is our modern day American Jeremiah, who can lament this lack of repentance in our nation and call us, even in the midst of suffering, to return true to the democratic fervor, as he would say, and reignite prophetic fire. So it can't just be any true sentence. It has to be uttered to the community, calling for change, and very important that then it's up to that community to decide whether or not to heed the words of the prophet. So Prophetic pragmatism isn't saying, here's what you got to do, and now it's going to be done. 
It simply says, if we want the goals of democratic society to actually happen, then these are the changes we need to make. And so you either do those changes and bring an end to suffering, or you invite the continuation of suffering. And then everyone wants to then say, how did we get in this situation? And the prophet then has to say, didn't you remember when we talked about these other things? And so a key part of prophecy is what Cornel West calls demystification. We shouldn't be surprised by the outcomes of our oppressive practices, such that if we want liberation, we have to change the practices that caused us the problem to begin with. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Jacob Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. We're talking about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Dr. Jacob Goodson and Dr. Brad Elliott Stone. We're talking about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. In our last segment, we talked about the fact that pragmatism is a particularly American philosophical movement that is looking at issues of democracy and justice as a way of moving forward in the world as a mode of thought. Well, we've spent a couple of questions now talking about various large-scale general concepts with regard to prophetic pragmatism, and a name that has come up repeatedly is the name of Cornell West. And Dr. Goodson, I'd like, if you would, just situate for us in a couple of sentences, who is Cornell West and why are we paying particular attention to his work in the context of prophetic pragmatism? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's fair to say that in 2020, Cornel West is the most important living philosopher in the USA. He was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was raised in Sacramento, went through the Ivy Leagues for his schooling, wrote his PhD dissertation under Richard Wardy, as well as some other famous scholars, and he's bounced around the Ivy Leagues for professor, as well as Union Theological Seminary. He's currently assigned a post in Harvard Divinity School. You can find him on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, PBS, almost on a weekly basis at this point, being constantly interviewed, asked for his opinions about Black Lives Matter, his opinion about Trump and the presidency. In my memory, Wes became popular because he surprisingly offered critiques of President Barack Obama. And people found that fascinating, given that Obama was the first African-American president. And West, at that point, was, to some, the representative of African-American scholarship in this country. But West is consistent that his role as a public intellectual and philosopher is to always be Socrates. And to be Socrates for West means always questioning 
those who hold power. So it doesn't matter who has the power or who holds the office of president for West. For him, his job is to question and criticize that role and, and the amount of power that comes with that role. So he was consistent in what he saw as his scholarly obligation and duties as a public intellectual to critique President Obama as much as he critiqued President Bush or President Clinton before. West has written a plethora of books. The book that has had the most impact on me is West American Invasion of Philosophy, which is West's account of pragmatism. He's also has made hip hop albums that I love to play for my students when we read West and study West in, in my classes. But he's um, toured a force as a personality. He thinks on his feet better than I think any anyone I've ever been around in my life. And he's a very generous man. I've met him on, on a few occasions. He calls me Brother Jacob. He always gives me a hug. And he's he's one of those scholars that doesn't see scholarship as a competition of ideas, but as a genuine and real community that is trying to develop what is best for the world. Well, and I want to pick up on this, Dr. Stone, because Dr. Goodson has just described the approach that Cornell West takes as a public intellectual. But I'm aware that Cornell West also describes himself as a blues man. And you raised the issue of the blues in our last segment. And I'd love if you would help for our listeners to sort of line out for us when Cornell West uses this phrase, I'm a blues man, what does he mean by that? Well, one thing he's thinking about is he's trying to, in prophetic pragmatism, highlight and emphasize the humanistic gifts that African-Americans have given to the United States. And one of the grand democratic elements that he thinks black culture gave to America is a tragic comic sensibility. The ability to look evil in the face, to actually call suffering what it is, while also not letting that evil and suffering dictate who we understand ourselves to be. So you take African-American people, begin this country in a state of slavery after the end of the Civil War and the passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. You get African-Americans are now citizens of the United States, but then white supremacist activities, including Jim Crow, forced unemployment, things like that, led Black people to have a very terrible situation. How did Black people respond to this situation? They did so with creativity both in a written form, of course, in literature, poetry, but also in music. And unlike Du Bois, who West criticizes, because Du Bois doesn't seem to appreciate Black pop culture and has a kind of Victorian elitism that would look down at blues music, for example, as being too folksy, West sees in it a set of practices that helped Black people be free. Now, the good news is blues will work even if you're not Black. Anyone can tap into the tragic comic sensibility of blues music and realize, yes, as uh, Wes sometimes points out, indeed, nobody loves me but my mother, but she might be jiving too, as B.B. King would sing. And the blues help us come to terms with an absurd situation. So a lot of times some people will 
count uh, Cornel West as an existentialist philosopher in this sense, that he is interested in the question of absurdity and human subjectivity. And somewhere at the end of the blues, you have to start laughing because first of all, it gives us a common humanity, but it also shows us that we have ways to get around our suffering. And so for West, the blues represents a powerful way of being honest about evil and suffering while also finding a point of view from which we can laugh. And when this, you know, of course, interacts with religion, you get gospel music so we can acknowledge the suffering we face while also knowing that freedom is coming. Oh, yes, we know freedom is coming. So for West, I think blues represents a kind of honest engagement with the world. And this is fascinating for two reasons. First of all, music is so underplayed in philosophy. The role of music in philosophy is rarely discussed. You have Theodore Adorno's stuff on music, but he's mostly thinking simply in terms of cultural production. And since Adorno did most of his critical theory work on cultural production, music would appear. But West has taken music and actually created it into, dare I say, a philosophical form. So just as uh, Professor Goodson mentioned, when I teach Cornell West, I also have students listen to these albums because they are not merely in addition to West's view. They are themselves text of West's view, what West calls a danceable education. Well, I want to linger there for a moment because you mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois. And one of the things that Du Bois talked about was the concept of the talented 10th. In other words, creating an elite. And you talk about this in the book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. You both engage it to some degree. But the notion of the talented 10th who will be able to ride on the crest of the crowd and to help to guide the crowd with nobility and with education. But as you said, Du Bois really doesn't trust the crowd itself. And what I'm hearing in what you're saying, Professor Stone, is that the blues is almost the democratic process put into music. Am I, am I hearing that comparison correctly, or would you say it in a different way? Slightly different, but not too far adrift. Of course, jazz is ultimately the highest democratic black music, where everyone comes with their own unique, you know, Emersonian individual style, and then you come together into this beautiful collective performance. Uh, so I would, I would be remiss to not mention jazz as the ultimate democratic music form. But the blues reminds us that the American story isn't the story of the elites. It isn't the story of the ones who always had it all. You know, when you think about American literature, the stories we like are the stories about the country boy who makes good, the rag to riches story, you know, Horatio Alger Jr.'s kind of story. And so blues comes from the people who are on the bottom. And West never allows, even though he's completely, you know, his undergraduate and his grad work was Ivy League. His career is Ivy League. He can go to any group of Black people anywhere in the United States, and he's just one more person. Whereas if you read Du Bois, you know, in certain passages, Du Bois actually feels disdain when he's around, for example, Southern Blacks. He himself being a New Englander, he finds Southern Black culture too barbaric. And West doesn't hold that view. 
West thinks that it's African-American culture in its common everyday form that's actually already liberating, already producing the tools of freedom, that I don't need to take like the top 10% of all Black people and give them all the resources and they'll figure it out. We already see freedom happening in the streets of Los Angeles. We see it happening in Black neighborhoods in Sacramento, California, as Cornel West is growing up. When Cornel West talks about 1970s Black music, you hear a joy of just the celebration of being Black, this funk, you know, one of Cornel West's favorite words, the funk of life, versus that kind of crusty, for lack of a better word, Ivy League elitism of Du Bois. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Dr. Jacob Goodson and Dr. Brad Elliott Stone. We're talking about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Well, Dr. Goodson, I want to stay with our look at Professor Cornell West, but you lift up something in one of the early chapters of the book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, that really just struck me, and I hadn't heard of it before. But it's the distinction in West's philosophy between the problematic and the catastrophic. And then as you raise this issue, Professor Stone also sort of brings uh, his own approach to it in further chapters and deepens it. But but, uh, Dr. Goodson, if you would, just tell us for a moment, what does Cornell West mean by this distinction between the problematic and the catastrophic? Excellent question. Yeah, and it's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book with Dr. Stone was to get that distinction out there. What Cornell West means, and I, I, I think I pretty well follow him on this, is that as scholars, we are trained to deal with conceptual problems. We are trained to deal with questions that arise from our own reading and our own thinking. And within philosophy, I can attest that that's pretty much what our training is about, is to identify problems resulting from certain conceptual schemes that we study, and then to do our work in relation to those conceptual problems. Dr. West has spent his uh, academic career making the case that our whole method of scholarship is misguided in this sense. That it's not conceptual problems that scholars are called to and obligated to respond to, but it's worldly catastrophes, right? It's catastrophes within the real world. That is what our minds should be directed towards and what our obligations need to be uh, exercised in relation to. And so for West, the move that scholars have to make if scholarship is to have any meaning or purpose, and particularly in the United States, is to basically get out of our own heads, right? To to stop thinking about the conceptual problems that we invent ourselves and to address and to think through and to acknowledge and to attend to the actual problems, what he calls catastrophes, that are going on around us within the world. Now, from a pragmatist perspective, West is not saying something new, he, but he's saying it better than it's been said before. Charles Sanders Peirce, who Dr. Stone mentioned in the first segment, he constructed a distinction between real doubts and paper doubts. And he argued that pragmatists were going to do away with paper doubts within philosophy. 
and only attend to real doubts. I think West's way of putting it in terms of problems versus catastrophes is a much more rhetorically rich way of, of addressing it. But basically, it comes down to West saying that the purpose of philosophy or the purpose of calling oneself a pragmatist is that scholars or philosophers or scholars in religion or political scientists address catastrophes, real problems in the world, not the conceptual problems that we come up with in our own individual minds as scholars. Well, and I want to follow on that and ask you, Dr. Stone, in light of what we were just saying about the blues. So the blues is a reaction by those that are in the, the situation of most vulnerability. It's an artistic reaction to that vulnerability and to the damage that sometimes can happen in that vulnerability. So when I'm hearing Dr. Goodson talking about catastrophe as being that thing that breaks us out of our own headspace and actually makes us as scholars attend to the real suffering of the world, it's almost like we're, we're seeing two vectors that are converging on a similar point. I want to make sure that I'm tracking that correctly. When we're looking at this call from Cornell West to be attentive to catastrophe instead of just problematics, are we looking at another facet of the attention to the blues that we were talking about a moment ago, or are these two separate ideas? Well, as the German philosopher Martin Heidegger would say about philosophy and poetry, they are not the same thing, but they do live in the same neighborhood. And so for African-American thought, you would have blues music, which would be kind of a street knowledge, as Cornel West titles his second album. And then you have the actual task of the Black intellectual. And so both of these are addressing the same absurd situation in America, namely the absurdity, a country founded on the notion of liberty and freedom that then is denied a significant population of the nation. How do I address that? Well, in philosophy, asking, you know, how do I know whether I have hands is a lot of fun, but it doesn't solve that problem, doesn't address black liberation, as it were. So if I'm going to do philosophy and keep kind of my intellectual end as the blues singer keeps his or her end of the deal, then I need to not only entertain philosophical puzzles, as it were, but also give my intellectual gifts to the process of liberation as well. And so I think it's John Dewey who once said that a lot of the philosophical problems that philosophers take seriously are actually our own games and diversions. And so he's not against them. It's okay to ask, you know, how do we know whether we have hands? But that is what philosophers do on their free time. The real goal of philosophy is to address the problems that people face. The people and its problems, as Dewey would say. And so in that regard, Cornel West wants to make sure that although the life of the mind is more than valuable and interesting, and he's not against it, it's hard to live that life when you know, and I'm just going to steal some examples from Cornel West, that there were children losing their lives in Yemen by drone strikes, or knowing that in the United States, the just amount of poverty in the age of Obama, hence the poverty tour that he took with Tavis Smiley, or when you look at the rise of American military uh, intervention on the globe, we have to address those problems. And if philosophy since the McCarthy period has stopped being invested in what's happening in America, John Dewey was probably the last great big American philosopher 
who actually was politically present in society, then we also can't be surprised that no one looks to philosophy today to respond to any of our crises because philosophy abdicated its role in handling catastrophe. And so prophetic pragmatism is always the call to return to a socially and politically engaged intellectual life. The blues musician is always already doing that because it's out of that very material catastrophe that the blues music is made out of. It's harder for academics, I think, to realize that they're actually trying to solve real problems underneath our mere theoretical concerns. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Jacob Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone. Jacob Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and Professor Brad Elliott Stone is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. We're talking about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, which is looking at the philosophical movement that foregrounded democracy and justice in the 20th and 21st centuries. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, Today, we're talking to Dr. Jacob Goodson and Dr. Brad Elliott Stone about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. In the course of our conversation, we've examined the claim that prophetic pragmatism is a gritty philosophical framework that undergirds the intellectual and political work done by those who seek to overcome despair, dogmatism, and oppression. We've begun to dig into the idea that the blues and American democracy are constitutive of the pragmatic philosophical process. We'll continue that conversation now. Dr. Stone, I want to pick up on something that you were just saying in the last segment where you were talking about the philosopher who wonders whether or not he has hands and that this kind of idle speculation is oftentimes what philosophers do in their free time, but it's not really something that would speak to the suffering of the the family that has had children lost from a drone strike in Yemen. When I heard you saying that, I heard an echo of what you said in our first segment where you said the concern of the prophet coming down the mountain, if the prophet comes down the mountain with with the face shining and then says, and two plus three equals five, that no one would really be very moved by that as a prophetic utterance. And so I want to ask you then, when we're looking at the prophetic, it's important that the prophet speak to the pain and the needs of the people. But now also what we're getting in this conversation is that when we're listening to the philosopher, the philosopher needs to speak to the needs of the people. 
the world needs to change in the work that both the prophet and the philosopher are doing. And when I hear that, I hear Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach. Philosophers thus far have only interpreted the world. The purpose, however, is to change it. So when we're looking at prophetic pragmatism, how does prophetic pragmatism, Dr. Stone, propose to change the world? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the thesis of Feuerbach, because, of course, that was the key chapter of Cornel West's dissertation in 1980, which was later published in 1991 as Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought. And so Cornel West is thinking of Marx here, not so much in terms of the political or economic system that you know, Marxist or communist governments would derive from Marx, but he's thinking about the fact that Marx opens us to a view of history that cares about what is happening in the struggling classes. And if you're looking in the American context, that class, the true proletariat, the material conditions under which American wealth and American way of life was created was African-American people. And so when we understand America, we have to be fully aware of African-Americans as that material condition for the American way of life. There is no part of the American story that does not use and incorporate African-Americans. And so African-Americans are not immigrants in that kind of traditional sense. As long as there's been United States, there have been African-Americans and they are in the scene. And so Marx helps us see that. Well, and Dr. Goodson, I, I want to continue with this exploration of Marx, because at one point in the book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, you look at Cornell West's treatment of Marx, and you make the suggestion, and if I misremember this, please correct me, but my understanding is that you made the suggestion that Cornell West manages to present the best possible reading of Marx, and West does it in part by failing to be doctrinarily Marxist. Now, first of all, have I presented that correctly, or would you say it differently? And if I have said it correctly, what does it mean? <laughs> I think you said it correctly, yes. The, the claim of that chapter is that for late 20th century, early 21st century America, that West gives us the best version of Marxism possible for that moment, our moment in history. And what I mean by it is that West, West goes out of his way in his book on Marxist thought to differentiate his use of the word Marxism from all the different ways Marxism was implemented in Soviet communism in the 20th century. So he wants his readers to not have any sense that the way that he's using the word Marxist relates to the way that it was misused and misapplied within the Soviet Union. So that's the negative aspect. The positive aspect is that for West, Marxism in one way simply identifies, it gives us an ism to name what it might mean to be a Christian thinker and to live Christianly in the modern world. And what I mean by that is that West identifies in Marx, he doesn't say Marx is a Christian himself, but West identifies in Marx the kinds of critiques of capitalism and the critiques of wealth that West finds a basic Christian ought to sign on to. And then what Christianity or what a Christian scholar ought to do is then to use 
the love and justice that is embodied and brought to earth by Jesus of Nazareth as a way to take a step forward from the cultural critique of capitalism and of wealth that Marx offers. So for West, Marxism doesn't name a positive system. West is not trying to implement a positive system based on what he's calling Marxism. Rather, Marxism names a system of thinking about what it is that we need to critique when we are critiquing the catastrophes in the real world. Marx enables us to properly identify and to more substantially identify the ways in which the systems that we all find ourselves in is oppressive and causes suffering. And so for West, to be a Marxist in the 21st century is simply to take the tools that Marx gave us, that Karl Marx gave us, and to apply them to the current systems of oppression. We can call that capitalism. We can call that white uh, white supremacism. uh, We can call that sexism. But West finds in Marx the tools needed to make those cultural critiques. And then the move that West makes is to reach to the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, reach to the New Testament to then identify what the promises of God are for us if if we make the proper cultural critique that needs to be made and, and then make the changes based on that critique. Well, and so we've, we've spent a little bit of time looking at the intellectual provenance that Cornell West draws from the work of Karl Marx. But uh, Professor Stone, I'm also aware that there's a great deal of intellectual provenance that comes to Cornell West from the work and thought of the philosopher and pragmatist Richard Rorty. And I wonder if you take a moment and just tell us a little bit about who Rorty was and who he was particularly for Cornell West. Well, Richard Rorty, according to Cornell West, his historicism was music to his ears Richard Rorty was at Princeton at this time. This is right at the time that Rorty is writing his magnum opus, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, which would proclaim the end of philosophy as it was practiced in analytic programs in the United States, as it were. It continued, of course, still to this day, but he proclaims that it should end. It's not doing what he would call edification. We're now just playing systematic games in philosophy, but we're not actually trying to edify. And so Wes is at Princeton as this book is being written. And Wes, in his first publication in 1977, called Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience, actually applies the not yet published position of Richard Rorty's reading of Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and Dewey to the African-American situation. So like the way West uses Marx, West also takes from Richard Rorty's critique of the quest for certainty and the idea that ideas are transparent to us and turns that into a way to examine the situation African-Americans find themselves. So the biggest influence that Rorty plays on West is a radical historicism that West then in his dissertation applies to Marx. So the dissertation on Marx is actually a Rortian reading, as it were, of Marx. The tension between West and Rorty is also well noted. Cornel West wrote a response to philosophy and the mirror of nature 
that critiqued Rorty for not going far enough in his historicism so that he does not account for solutions to actual political problems. He would continue this critique all the way up to the already mentioned American Evasion of Philosophy. Professor Goodson referred to that book. So that you take Rorty's romantic liberal postmodernism, but you actually submit it to the need to end suffering. It's important to note that for Richard Rorty, I do not have a philosophical reason to end suffering. And West isn't interested in keeping that answer. He wants us to change the world toward liberation. When West does this at the end of the American Evasion of Philosophy, Richard Rorty writes a famous review of that book called The Professor and the Prophet, where Rorty reasserts that it's really hard for philosophers and professors in American higher education to actually play this prophetic function. So there's a certain way in which Cornel West is calling us to be professors in a way that Rorty points out is very difficult for an American professor to do. There's a certain way in which the academic world in the United States is unable to perform that prophetic function. So the big difference between the two is Rorty wonders whether the philosophical life as it is practiced in American higher education can actually do the prophetic work that Cornel West calls us to do. And I think that's the case even today when people want to be maybe a scholar activist or they want to be a scholar and active in their communities and give their intellectual gifts to their communities, the pressure of the academy as a counterforce to political action has always been present in particularly African-American intellectuals. And this battle between Rorty and West almost exemplifies the very battle for anyone who wants to be an intellectual who's also dedicated to changing the actual world we live in. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests are Jacob Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. We're talking about their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Well, Professor Goodson, I want to carry what uh, Professor Stone was just saying into my question to you. So the the tension that Professor Stone is talking about between Cornell West and Richard Rorty is a tension of, if you will, kind of relevance, the way in which the public intellectual is able to actually speak to the times and to actually be a kind of scholar activist. When I hear that, I hear an echo of an earlier part of our conversation, this tension between the problematic and the catastrophic. And I'm going to say this, and please correct me if, I, if I've said it incorrectly. One of my understandings of the distinction that West makes between the problematic and the catastrophic is that the problematic question assumes that the answer to the problem will be found within the structure that asks the question itself, whereas the catastrophic says the answer comes from without because the system itself is crumbling or the system itself is the source of the oppression that we're trying to solve. And so is part of the tension that Professor Stone is raising up here, is part of the tension that we're seeing between Rorty and West, this tension in a, in a commitment on Rorty's part to a problematic mindset versus West's approach to a catastrophic mindset? I think some of that's there. I, 
I'd have to say yes and no to that representation. I think Wardy agrees with Peirce and Dewey and West that philosophers should prioritize the catastrophic over the problematic. I think the difference is that Wardy thinks the professorial job is just limited by definition and that the best we can do as as professors or scholars is to acknowledge and identify the catastrophes for our students and readers, but Wardy hardly ever gives us a program for what to do with those catastrophes. The best he does comes in achieving our country where he, he talks about the reformist left and how the, the new academic cultural left that arose in the 1960s superseded the reformist left and, and we need to return to, to the reformist left as a way to get our country sort of back to the center from the far right that, that Wardy thought we, we'd gone to. So yes, I affirm your the way that you put it in terms of the limitations that Wardy puts on what the professorial and the scholarly vocation are. But I would say that from a Wardian perspective, that philosophy should be about identifying catastrophes around us, even if we aren't the ones that are going to fix those. I think a deeper difference here might be that West doesn't see his job as professor or scholar to fix those problems. I think West would go back to his favorite labels of being a, a blues man and, and a Christian at the same time, that as a blues man and a Christian, he's obligated to to try to fix or, or solve those problems. And so it it may not be that West and Wardy are too far apart on this. It's just that West has additional identities to himself than, than only being professor or scholar, which Wardy did not share. Well, and uh, as we're moving towards the conclusion of our conversation, I, I want to turn back for a moment to Professor Stone. I'm going to ask you a question, then I'm going to ask the same question of Professor Goodson. I said at the top of, of our conversation that I got into this book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, expecting it to be a very dry and very technical book, and I don't want to mischaracterize it. It is incredibly well-researched, it is technical, it is rigorous. Nevertheless, I found it to be incredibly conversational and readable. And so I want to ask you, and then as I said, I will ask Professor Goodson as well, in the process of writing this book, who did you think you were writing this book for? Who do you hope the audience is for this book? And what do you hope, what impact do you hope the book will have on them? Well, I think there's two main hopes that then determine the audience. One is that a lot of academic writing is lonely and fails to have conversation. So in philosophy, we say over and over and over, the great conversation. Welcome to the great conversation. And then we never have that conversation. You have one person's book holding one position, other person's book holding the other. When people do try to co-write books, they either go with the, well, look, there's just this many different positions, or they really don't mean what they're saying. They just represent a particular angle. Jacob and I, I'll use personal terms here, wrote the book for the conversations we've had and those who have heard us have these conversations and people who have joined us in these conversations. So in that regard, the first audience is very intimate. It's me, Jacob, 
and lots of friends we've made over the years talking about this issue. And so anyone who knows us hears us in this book. The second audience is to a greater academic world who's kind of gotten tired of scholars just yelling at each other and saying, well, my view is right and your view is wrong. And instead, our book tries to model what a good philosophical conversation could be for anyone who wants to know something about a particular issue. And so the hope would be there would be future books by others actually talking about the things they hold to be important. Prophetic pragmatism is something that Dr. Goodson and I both hold as important. We do not agree about what it means and how it ought to be practiced on every point, but what we wanted to model is the kind of conversation that any philosopher can have with another philosopher when they want to figure out something. The truth about something is what guides us. And so I want for particularly younger readers of the book, younger scholars, you know, undergraduates and graduate students, to see that there's another way to do philosophy than what uh, Marion Maholdwald once said many years ago, the blood sport of philosophy. We've got to stop viewing philosophy as simply arguing with each other and hoping that someone dies along with their argument. We are trying to figure things out. And so the more conversations we have, the better. And so I also see that as an audience for this book. And Professor Goodson, let me ask you that same question. Who do you hope is the audience for the book and what impact do you hope the book will have on that audience? Yeah, thank you. I think in the final paragraph of the book is where I'm, I start to articulate this question of audience. And the phrase that I use there is those who share in the prophetic pragmatist vision. And so this book, as Dr. Stone was just saying in his second point, this book is an introduction in a very literal way. We're hoping that this starts and concretes a conversation that others will then participate in through writing their own books or essays on what prophetic pragmatism is. And I define those who share in the prophetic pragmatist vision as those who also want to identify the catastrophes of classism, racism, sexism, as well as the catastrophes that are caused by and in between the infighting of Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Those are the catastrophes that I think prophetic pragmatism is able to address and provide some solutions for those who are victims of the oppression and suffering that we've named. So the, the last sentence reads, those who share in the prophetic pragmatist vision ought to display prudence and applying prophetic pragmatism to the oppression and suffering that they encounter in their own lives. And for me, that is the heart of why we wrote this book, is to not give guidelines, but to, to give a map of what it would look like to take these philosophical arguments, these different thinkers, and to start to identify the oppression and suffering that we're experiencing in America, caused by classism, racism, and sexism, and to learn how to move forward from those, not in a way that forgets or neglects those things, but in a way that takes them as seriously as possible, and then try to come up with actual solutions. 
And I think it's, I think it's funny rereading that last paragraph in 2020. It's more obvious now than it, than it was in 2018 when we were uh, finishing the book. Our politicians are not going to be the ones that offer solutions. <laughs> They're going to be the ones that keep perpetrating the problems, that keep perpetrating the oppression and the suffering. And so it really is mandatory. It really is an obligation of anyone who identifies the oppression and suffering that comes with the classism, racism, and sexism of this country, that we also think of solutions that can be practiced in our own everyday lives. And if you're willing to do that, then Dr. Stillenai's claim is that you are at least interested in or participating in the prophetic pragmatist vision. Well, Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob Goodson, at the top of the conversation, I said that I thought that this was a powerful book. I just want to say, I I, want to reiterate again, I think this book is a tour de force, so well written. It's not light reading. I don't want our listeners to get the sense that this is just like a coffee table book. It, It goes deep and it really brings forward an incredibly rich conversation. I want to thank you both for the time and effort that you took to write the book together, but also thank you for your generosity in talking to us about it today in this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Dalt. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It's definitely been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Brad Elliott Stone, who is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and Jacob L. Goodson, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We've been discussing their recent book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.